The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. This morning, instead of waking up at 3, the Lord woke me up about 2 o'clock. Just had a different idea for this morning. All week, I've been preparing for a message regarding the the seventh commandment and on starting was going to be on marriage. But one of the things that as we listen to people speak and as we listen to what today is celebrated throughout all churches, I think sometimes we forget the meaning of not Easter, but the resurrection. And so the resurrection is one of the most important things for us as the church. And so today I'm going to be preaching a message called The Church and the Resurrection. I'll, I'll kind of give you the, the, the gist of it this morning. Last Sunday was Easter. The Sunday before that was Easter. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week the, the apostles, the disciples worshipped Him. Why? Was it because, you know what, I want to be different than the Jews of my heritage? I just want to be different. No. The Sabbath day was, it would change because of certain things. But the first day of the week remained the same. But here's the thing. It wasn't just because, hey, I think Sunday sounds like a good day or the first day of the week. It was because the Lord rose on the first day of the week. And because He rose on the first day of the week, the church is always celebrated. The Lord's Day. Rushdie wrote this, The church rests on a miracle. It was born out of a miracle. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can thus say very simply, no resurrection, no church. The miracle on which the church stands is the destruction of the power of sin and death over us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As St. Paul states it, If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. You see, the church, here's the first, the first thing, the main point of this morning. The church rests on a miracle, the power of that miracle, and therefore the church and its members live a miraculous and providential life in Jesus Christ. I will say this, if an atheist says you base your whole belief on something that, see, it's miraculous, it's almost, it's, un, it's not understandable in some ways and you're, you can say this yes I do but I base it upon what the word of God says the church rests on the miracle of God and what he did the power the very power of that miracle and then our, as members we live a miraculous and providential life I want us to see that this is not just something that happened in order to save a people it is a, is a thing that gives the people of God a purpose Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. It's our theme passage for this morning. And it says in verses 1 through 9, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... 
Being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By, and it says, By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Rostini also wrote about the church. He said, The church thus cannot see itself simply as an institution. It is the power and presence of God the Son in history, and it is informed and guided by God the Spirit. The formal gathering and organization of the church followed the resurrection and the ascension. The miracle of Christ's resurrection means the miracle of regeneration. And we, by God's grace and power, have been raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The exaltation of Christ by means of His resurrection and ascension is the exaltation of humanity in Him. Now, I, I read passages of Scripture all the time. And I will tell you, we need to apply it to our lives. You need to apply Scripture to your life. And how you do that is not just by mentally doing it, but by taking it and living it out the next day. Living it out moment by moment. And letting it affect all of life. And there are two ways to look at this theme passage. First, as if it applies to us individually. Or second, as if it applies to us corporately as the church. Now you might say, well, can it be done both ways? It depends. There's this big word that pastors will use or people who study theology, doctrine, they'll use the word hermeneutics. It's a real simple word, which means how one studies. How you understand the genre, how you understand the genre of the literature you're reading, the language, the history, the dating, all those things. It's all those things come to play at one point in time to give you understanding. Some things are just very simple. It's just, you know, he's, you know he's, the Lord's speaking not only to his apostles, his disciples. He, he's speaking to those who will come in the future. There are also times that we take it and we know he's not speaking directly to us, but it's applied to us because we are one of the same. Ephesians 2, 5-6, through 6, which you just read, he said, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Him. And he raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. It's important to see that He is not saying, let's look at this individually. But we need to look at it with the eyes of His church. Rushdie said, We must not overlook the significance of and in the translation he uses, he uses a King James or, or another version. It says to sit together. He has made us what? He has raised us. He has seated us with him. Normally in the presence of a king, a man prostrated himself at the king's feet. Or if he, should, if he stood, it was by the grace of the king. By grace we are made to what? To sit together. For example, to be enthroned and to reign with him. He has called us to be more than just a people that have been marked. second little thing here is the fallacy, though, is to only apply it to the individual. It's a lie to think that only this... It, you take this scripture and you apply it to you personally and only. It's dangerous. 
I'm using Rushton a lot this morning because on this specific, te- I mean, this I I had to go research this morning. If he's going to lay it on, he's going to put it on my heart. I better do the work this morning, and fine. But the he said Rushton wrote the Roman Empire, like modern culture, was atomistic, means um, unto itself. Okay, Paul speaks against this atomistic individualism, means where I withdraw to myself. Whatever I believe, I believe. Whatever I you believe, you believe, and we just have to be okay with that. It's atomistic, which means we're all on our own. It's, it's really autonomy, which is a dangerous thing. He contrasts the old and new humanities, the fallen mankind governed by the spirit of rebellion, by Satan's dominion of sin, as against the new humanity, regenerated and recreated by Jesus Christ, the last Adam. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five through 50 says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam... If y'all don't understand this passage of scripture, is Jesus Christ. Okay, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There's a contrast here, but it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So the natural man came, the first Adam. Then the spiritual Adam came. Secondly, the first man was from the earth. He was made of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man, and as is the man of heaven, so are those who also are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Y'all remember, without going there, do you remember in Genesis, in the beginning, he made them in the image of God, in the image of him they made male and female? Okay. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I want you to think about it a moment, about the context of the letter of Scripture. Uh, by the way, Ephesians is a letter to the church at Ephesus. Okay, So let's just back that up. Hear what I just said. The Ephesians is a letter to the church at Ephesus. So what does that mean? Is it a person named Ephesus? It's a people, right? So let hermeneutics, who's this written to? Okay, so we know it's a letter. We know it, the, the, it, what he's kind of generally writing to, but he's writing to the church. So within the context of the letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul is writing to the church as a whole. This is what you're to think, or these are the things that you're dealing with. Ephesians 2, which we just read as our theme passage, it's a prelude to another well-known passage of Scripture. And let's look at what it is and. I want you to hear the context of it. Is he talking to individuals or is he talking to the church? And he sums it up very easily. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so they might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see 
that she respects her husband. He's taking an illustration of Christ and his bride, and he's given it as an illustration of how we are to live, but he's not saying this whole passage is not about just about husbands and wives. This passage is about Christ and his church. And I will say this, if, his, if Christ's church does not submit to him in all things, what kind of relationships do we have in marriages? That's our example. And if it doesn't begin there as, as, as his church submitting to him, I can guarantee marriages, churches full of marriages are going to be the same way. Paul here stresses the corporateness of man. He is either in Adam, in sin, or is in Christ, being set free. And here we see the necessity of the church. We see the necessity of the church local. Part A, under their subheading, The church of the resurrection does more than rejoice in its salvation, but in knowing and moving to victory in terms of God's mighty power. While you are writing this down, I think it's interesting that God gives gives this, and I look at this, and, and I have someone this morning, I, I look on Facebook and they post uh, the church's not receipt is not moving toward victory they're moving from victory and i had to think about this and if i was to change this this morning i had time to change it i would have said this to you we are moving from victory to victory he said we're moving from a victory we're moving from that victory but we're not just we don't just look back to that victory but we're always looking forward to the ultimate victory that is as the consummation of Christ's kingdom now the thing the thing is is a church that is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that focuses on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, does more than just rejoice in the salvation that Christ brought. They're always looking, they they, they rejoice in knowing and moving constantly toward the ultimate victory in terms of God's mighty power. Now, many people today will be posting things online and they're going to be talking about, they're going to go back to the original, the original account. And that's where they're going to keep going back to the original account. But the question comes up is, what what is what is Christ's kingdom look like since that day? I mean, ultimately, Christ himself even says, Y'all, you, his, to his disciples, you will do greater things than I. Why would he say something like that? If he expected that that day was the only thing, that was the ultimate in the salvation of all things, but that's not the ultimacy of his kingdom. Ephesians 1, 16-23 says, I do not cease to give thanks uh, for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, uh, Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, for above all Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. It wasn't just the pinnacle of all things was... uh, I don't want to take away and degrade what Christ did on the cross because it's the ultimacy of, uh, in the sense of, of bringing salvation. That which was impure, that which was unclean, that which could never be atoned for by sacrifice, 
It was made in Him. The spotless Lamb was sacrificed on our behalf. I'm not going to take away from that. But the thing is, is it wasn't just that was the moment and then that's it. Even after the fact, but as, as He's raised from the dead, He comes to His disciples and, he's, and, and He meets with them one more last time before he what he, he ascends into heaven and what we see this is what does he tell them listen you don't need to know the time or the hours when these things will happen but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses and Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth he tells them this because the ultimate thing is listen you will see me face to face again one day but that's not what your point that's not the point when I come and when I return and when these things are fulfilled are not what's most necessary what's most necessary is you will be my witnesses to the uttermost ends of the world until my kingdom is fulfilled until victory upon victory is won until the very end of all things we're moving toward that victory in His mighty power. When the Holy Spirit comes in, you'll receive power. And He goes on, and we know in Acts chapter 2, it's not up there, I'm just thinking about this, the day of Pentecost comes, and what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit, and, and they be, begin speaking in tongues, languages of all these people, and they hear the gospel proclaimed, and they draw near. Why? That they may hear the gospel message to the ends of the earth. It's proclaimed. That's the point of it. I mean, that, that's kind of why it's kind of like, it's like buyer's remorse. I think too many churches, churches treat salvation in such a way that there's buyer's remorse. If I can sell you Jesus, you're going to always be left empty. If Jesus has truly saved you and changed you, transformed you, there will never be want of anything after. But what we do is we sell this image of Jesus, this this ultimate, if you'll just receive Him, if you'll just do these things, your life will be different. And, And if you'll just say this prayer to get there, it'll be different. And what happens is people do that and they're like, and nothing's changed. Because it's not about what you can do to make it change. The point is, it's not just... The salvation. The point is not just these things. It is more than that. It's about a victory to victory to victory in His power. Rushdie went on to say, We are saved by God's grace and the working of His mighty power. And we are summoned to rejoice in that mighty power, not simply over our new estate. The church of the resurrection will thus do more than rejoice in its salvation. It will know and move to victory in terms of God's mighty power. That's where it comes from. His miraculous working in us, in the church, and in history, we are delivered from the course of this world or the evil power of this world which once worked in us. And to the mighty power of the triune God, we move from a reprobate to a redeemed estate. But this is not all. For to limit our salvation to this is to deform it. We move from the evil and the naturalistic course of this fallen world, from the spirit of the evil one and the supernatural working power and spirit of the triune God. We move from death to life and from defeat to, from defeat to victory. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's more than that. It's more than just that moment Yes, I'm saved. Now what? I mean, you don't understand. For 20 years, 20 years, I've watched people get to this place. Okay, now what? Well, it's time to go to work. And you might be like, what? Now that I know, it's time to make known. Every time I know more, 
I make no more. We are not just just to sit in that state of our salvation, but be to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus is enthronement with Christ. Without going once again too far off, I want you to think about this. It says in a, it tells us He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Where is Christ? We, you know why we do the Apostles' Creed? It's the basic, most simplistic thing of the Christian faith. That anybody, it doesn't matter if someone's a Methodist, a Lutheran, hopefully some Catholics. I mean, we go in there and I'm just joking. I'm just, listen, I mean, what happens if someone comes into this church, and I say a Catholic comes into this church, and they look at that statement of faith, and they truly look at it and believe that statement. We come together in the unity under that creed. That to creed is when the word credo, which means I believe. And we come to this place, and it says this, we've, he's, he's what? He seated us up with Him in the heavenly places. We say that in that creed, He, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. He sits enthroned, and it says right here, He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, go the next little sub-point. This does not make us like God. I want you to understand that we're not make, becoming little gods. But it reestablishes man's covenant calling to be God's prophet, priest, and king over the earth. What he's doing is he's reestablishing that covenant with him to walk with him and talk with him, to be his mouthpiece, to, to take dominion, to subdue the earth. We get to join him in more than just saying, Look, I'm chosen. He, he saved me. Check, check. What does he do? No, he doesn't leave us there. He, he, he seats us with us. And look at Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He seats us in the heavenly places and he puts all things into... He gives us part of that dominion responsibility to rule and to reign over this earth. To, and I say this, to rule and to reign over this earth. To what? To Not just to sit in our salvation, but to move mightily for His kingdom's sake to transform this earth. To be able to preach and to share the gospel verbally. But it doesn't make us like God. It just reestablishes the covenant. Secondly, God resurrects what He does in this process. He resurrects the dead people and makes them alive together as his church i find it really interesting if you take the correlation that jesus died he came to a people dead in their transgressions but jesus died and god raised him from the dead why so we who are what ephesians 2 1 and then 4 through 5 you are who are dead in their trespasses and sin in that moment even when we were dead he what he made us alive how did he make us alive i underlined it it's by his grace he resurrects a dead people and makes them and brings them alive together. So it's not my salvation and your salvation and their salvation and all these different, all this junk. He brings us under the unity, under the headship of Jesus Christ alone. He brings us under one head. He makes us alive. He seats us together with Him in the heavenly heaven. He thrones us with Him with a responsibility of all things that have been placed under His feet as His church. See, nothing thirdly regarding the purpose of the resurrection should be viewed individually, but corporately in regards to His church. And the reason why 
I, I remember as a kid sitting in church services where people would say, all right, now give me your testimony. We're going to share testimonies. It's Wednesday night. It's a fifth Wednesday or it's this special. We're going to share testimonies. And I have no problem with people telling me what God has done in their lives. But here's the problem. I can guarantee you, even if someone shared their testimony five times, if someone goes before them and shares, and the story just gets has to get a little bit better, and a little bit better, and a little bit and I'm not messing around. I mean, it, it's true. The thing is, in Scripture, we're always painted equally the same. You're dead. You're dead. And I'm sorry, but a dead body can't do anything to save itself. And a dead body can't reach out for a life preserver. And a dead body doesn't breathe on its own. A dead body doesn't make choices on it. You have one choice, to be dead. But when God makes you alive, you're not some more special made alive than the other dead person that was made alive by Christ. You're just another member of the body, and each part has its purpose. Now, the reason why I share this is because so often we'll say, well, when Jesus saved me, if you, I mean, I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll say this openly. I can tell you this, the people, people would say, well, I don't have this hard life story and hard road to hoe kind of story. I don't have this, I came out of drugs and depression kind of story. And I came out, they don't have this one. And I say, you have the best testimony of all. Thanks be to God from the very beginning. What did he do? He has, he has enveloped you and, and guided you. I, people were like, I just don't have that kind of story. So I don't want to share my testimony. I was like, you're the one who needs to. Because all those other stories are stories of families who have been walking outside of the covenant of God and outside of His Scripture for so long. They don't have any other example. They have no other generational covenantal example to go before them. No doubt why all these things are like that. The greatest example is, come share with me what your family was like and why. They need to see the difference. It don't matter where you go in Scripture. There's always a comparison. There's a comparison between the dead and the life. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked... They're not so, but are like the, the chef that, 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 that the wind drives away. Though the, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 34, it's another comparison, 12-22. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Matthew seven thirteen through 14 there, it says very simple, simply, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, there is a way of death and there's a way of life. A way of defeat and a way of victory. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Ephesians 2, 4. Hath created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God hath preordained that we should walk in them. This is not all. God, while we were yet sinners and dead in sin, He he called us to Himself. He quickened us together with Christ. Our regeneration is grounded in an aspect of Christ's resurrection. The birth of the church and our regeneration in Christ are like aspects of the miracle of the resurrection. We find this aspect that no matter what, our salvation and the life that is to come is all grounded in the fact of the miracle of the resurrection. We therefore cannot have an attitude of defeat, but of victory. We can't have an attitude of defeat. Rushdie wrote, A church member or a church with a defeatist outlook is thinking in Pelagian and humanistic terms. Such a person or church assumes that only a naturalistic and educational power rests within its hands. It limits the power of Christ's church to the power of man and to the power of numbers. Now I'll tell you, throughout history, you'll know numbers don't mean might and power. We know throughout time we, we've seen story and account after one after another of what the Lord did throughout Scripture with very few men. In fact, to the point that there's not enough men to defeat and He just says, no, watch what I do. I mean, if you really want to go to it, a message such as the Gospel of Christ should never have been able to take root with 12 men, one who, one who was actually betrayed and chosen to betray It shouldn't have. The odds were completely against it. It's the whole gospel. But it's not the power of man. It's not the power of man and what he can say and can do. It's the power of God. That's without going to it. That's what Romans 1 says. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation of every man. Whether Jew or, Jew, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. See, we reveal the effect of Christ's resurrection in us and an attitude of victory through our good works. Through our works. What we do. Our deeds. The miraculous is still done time and time again when we yield to the very Holy Spirit leading and guiding us to do the very work of Christ that He's called us to do. Rushdie wrote that the church and the Christian are a miracle born and spirit and power endowed. To think naturalistically is to deny the Lord in our faith for we are His workmanship. And as Marcus Barth renders it, God himself has made us what we are. In the Messiah Jesus, we are created. God sets forth in his word that those good works which he before ordained, that we should walk in them. Or as Barth gives it, these good works which God hath provided as our way of life. See, good works are thus our way of life. Good in the Greek is agathois, which, that which is good in character and constitution, beneficial in uh in truth, and because it manifests godliness, I'm sorry, beneficial in nature, because it manifests godliness, overcomes evil, because God is good, and because God alone is truly and absolutely good, all good works manifest the nature and the power of God. To believe in the impotence of the good is to believe in Satan and in Satan's program, the original sin, the original fall. Satan's program is alone powerful and effectual. To deny the power and victory of the good is to affirm the victory of Satan. However, to be given power to do good by Christ's regenerating work is to be given the power to be victorious. The church of the resurrection is a victorious church. Folks, when we say 
that the victory of Christ is limited is saying Satan's victory is omnipotent. That's a problem. Christ is God. Satan is a created being. Jesus, we find in John 1, it's not up there, but John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we find that all things were made by Him and through Him and for Him. Jesus is God, and Satan can have no triumph, have no victory, and have no power or victory over Christ in any way. We need to understand that. And to say that Christ's resurrection, the salvation, and all that comes from because of the resurrection is limited is to say that, that Satan is omnipotent and all-powerful. That he can't be defeated. Of course he can be defeated, though. Because he was a created one. We, our actions, our salvation is not just all. What we find in James 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So when people live in this way and they say, Oh, I believe in God. I just, I keep it. It's all right here. It's all packed away, nice and neat, clean. I don't use it. I don't want to, it's, it, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to bother anyone with it. But it's, it's just me. The problem with that is, if someone has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save them? That's a question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the need, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, doesn't have action, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by what I do is what he says. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by his works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, apart from works, is a dead faith. And I'll say this, to have a defeatist mentality is to have a dead faith. When you say, we can never win, it will never end, it's only going to get worse. It's to say that Christ isn't on His throne and you don't sit with Him. To say that is to 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 call it foolishness when Paul says you're you're an heir of Christ, you're an heir of God and you're co-heirs with Christ. Or to call Jesus Himself a liar in Matthew 16 verses 18 to 19. He says, "I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." That's a powerful statement given to his church. Remember when I say this, when the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, that means we are, the, as an army of the living God, we are storming the gates of hell. And those gates will not hold. It's not the other way around. We're not just saying, I'm strong enough to hold the gates back until Jesus rescued me. We're storming the gates of hell in the name of Jesus. See, the problem with most Christians in the majority of local gatherings of a church are presumed to be churches is what is occurring today. Today, throughout all the world, people will celebrate Easter. They will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Yet next Sunday, they will deny Him and go on to preach their self-help sermons of topical Christianity and make it all about them 
rather than the meaning of the day. I have no problem. I mean, this is who I am. I'm just going to share this with you. This is what I've been dealing with. Listen, I, I served in a church in South Texas, and I see on there their youth pastor who is a female brought their youth group to see the shack yesterday. And I, I'm going to tell you this. Doctrinally, there's some issues when you talk about here's the Holy Spirit, and that's the Trinity that's being displayed in this movie, and it's a funky way, and it's actually a heretical way of looking at the Trinity. Now, as a pastor, I'm wondering why... why and God's creation, the pastor didn't say, I don't know, that you, I think this is something that maybe we need to work through. Maybe you shouldn't be bringing the youth group. Oh, no, it was celebrated. There's some problems with that. First, God's not a woman. I'll let y'all know that. No way is he represented ever as a woman. And that might bother some people, but I'm going to say this. That's the kind of stuff we're turning around to. Next Sunday, it's going to be about how to be a better husband. Well, no, it's Mother's Day is coming up, so that's coming up in a couple weeks. So we're going to be talking about the family. You're going to have all these marriage sermon series. My marriage, the one I'm talking about on marriage is not a sermon series on marriage. It's about you shall not commit adultery and how we commit adultery in every form or fashion. But the apostles and early disciples, they worshiped the Lord. As I told you on the first day of the week, not out of convenience. I'm going to share this. They had to go back to work many occasions. But because our Lord was resurrected on the first day of the week, Sunday, which we call the Lord's Day. That's why when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, we use it all the time to talk about all the messed up parts of, of communion and what's going on with that. Again, understand, these people were going to work and they were coming to meet in homes and they were coming from wherever it was. That, that on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, they, it, it might not be a Sabbath. It might be, They're coming together. Not out of convenience. It was hard. Because you've got people who own their own businesses. You've got people who are slaves and servants in the early church, especially in the church at Corinth. That's why he told them to wait. If you want to eat and get your fill and get drunk, do it at home. Every Sunday, every Sunday, is to be a resurrection celebration. Much more than that, celebration is to be lived out and applied daily. Since Jesus Christ is not only the Lord over every Sunday, He's the Lord over every day. And His victory and His call upon us is, is revealed as we live out and speak forth His Word. I, I share this with you because when the churches get done with their Easter egg hunts, the kids won't remember, they won't remember anything else. Kids will remember the egg drop. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you picking up eggs and eating candy. I desire candy, I like candy. But I'm going to share something with you. I think you missed the point, if you can't get the point across. Next Sunday, if this Sunday you're dropping 200,000 Easter eggs, what are you going to do next week? You're going to have to put a zip line in? What's next? That's why you got... 50-year-old, 60-year-old pastors wearing skinny jeans, T-shirts, trying to make everything relevant because the message isn't relevant. The message doesn't change. The church of the resurrection is a different kind of church, and their lives change this world for the sake of the kingdom of God daily. And that's the church we ought to be. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group and don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.